I added one more podcast to the giant podcast bin. Now you have plucked that podcast out and started listening. I took my microphone and found some human folk. Then I recorded all the noises while we spoke. My name is Adam Buxton. I'm a man. I want you to enjoy this. That's the plan. doing listeners adam buxton here nice to be back with you again i'm out for a walk with my dog friend rosie she's up ahead she just looked back at me when i said that what what are you talking about me for she's bouncing in the fields there she's got a good attitude she doesn't care that the weather is currently non-clement anyway despite the summer being over in podcast world It's still holiday time. That's right. Welcome to this first Adam Buxton podcast holiday special. Holidays used to be a miracle. Now, if you listen to a rising clamour of protest, they are the destroyer of worlds. So is tourism a force for good or a beauty-destroying, culturally emulsifying, planet-trashing nightmare? Whoa, steady on, Michael Burke, on my favourite Radio 4 middle-class worry programme, The Moral Maze. Those are, without doubt, questions it behooves all of us to consider especially privileged people like myself who can afford to travel and love to do so. But today, I'm just inviting listeners to join me and the rest of Team Buckles on an audio holiday, much less damaging for the planet. And I'm going to do this via some recordings I made in January of this year, 2017, when we got the opportunity to go skiing together as a family for the first time. It is philistinism. It is a recipe for a global disaster. All right, Giles Fraser. Anyway, the first half of the podcast, you'll be hearing how our trip went. And in the second half, you'll be hearing a rambly conversation recorded on a mountainside with one of the people who came with us on holiday, my old friend Dougie Payne, who plays bass in the Glaswegian Why Does It Always Rain On Me band, Travis. Dougie and his son Freddie, who also joined us, were, like several members of our party, new to skiing. So we discussed how it had gone, as well as talking a bit about the time at the turn of the century when Travis found themselves on the cover of pretty much every other music magazine in this country, hailed as the biggest band in Britain. Ah, Y2K. Never mind Y2K, Buckles. What about why skiing? Well... I'll be answering that question when I return to my nutty room and switch to narrator voice mode. But first, holiday jingle. In his travel writing capacity, my dad took me, my brother and sister and my mum on several European ski trips in the 80s, and I went with friends a couple of times thereafter, but it wasn't something I'd ever considered doing with my own family. Yes, it was occasionally great fun, but to organise, too much hassle, too much expense, with too much potential for things to go wrong. You might have problems with all that costly gear. You could fall and break your scrotum badly. 
You might get trapped in a crap nightclub with a gang of drunk toffs and be forced to sing along to Barbie Girl, or worse. Then, late last year, I was contacted by Al Judge, a listener to this podcast who, along with his wife Kat, runs a chalet business in the French ski resort of Morzine, under the name Alley Cats. Which is slightly cheating because he's called Al, not Ali, but I let that slide. Aware of the awesome commercial power of this podcast, Al and Kat invited us to stay in one of their chalets as their guests in return for a mention. I consulted my wife, my wife, and we had a look at the Alley Cat's website. The chalet looked considerably more luxurious than anywhere I'd stayed on skiing trips in the past. We decided to accept Al's generous offer. Wary of taking the piss, but not excessively wary, I asked if we could bring some friends. Al said yes. The chalet we'd be staying in, Riverwood Lodge, sleeps up to 16 people. So, as well as Dougie, I called my friends Lydia and Chris. They live in Spain. Lydia is Spanish, you see, and they have two boys: Ale, who was 16 at the time, and Liam, who was 11. Apart from Chris, none of them had skied before. Liam had never even seen snow. We were also joined by our pal Danny. You may have heard Dan playing eight-line poem at the end of the first part of my Bowie Wallow podcast. As well as being an excellent skier, Dan is also reliably good company, happy to play games with the children endlessly, and doesn't make you long for death when he picks up a guitar and starts singing. The holiday team was assembled. Holiday team. The first few days of 2017 were spent ensuring that we had all the gear we could possibly need for five days on the slopes. Skis themselves, along with boots, poles, and helmets, would be hired in Morzine. But jackets, gloves, thermal leggings, trousers, slash salopettes, and vests all came with us. Some of these were borrowed from friends and family, but my wife insisted on buying other items new. I felt it my duty as a grumpy husband to shake my head at the expense of each purchase she proposed. Do we really need all this new gear? Couldn't the children just stuff their jeans with toilet paper? That would keep them warm, surely. Plus, if they need toilet paper, they're sorted. When it came to buying myself a pair of gloves, however, I was assured by the shop assistant that only an idiot would skimp on the price if they could afford not to. Freezing fingers on a frosty mountain are a recipe for guaranteed misery, unless you're talking about fish fingers. In which case, yum, bready fish lolly. I bought the expensive gloves, and the shop assistant nodded his approval. You, sir, are not an idiot. He seemed to be saying as he asked if I also wanted some fluffy chalet slippers. Not being an idiot, I said, "Yes, give me them slippers, please." It's the day of our departure in early January. Yes, I've shifted tense. Watch out! And we're driving to Stansted Airport in order to catch a flight to Geneva, where we'll meet Dougie and his son Freddie. From there, a minibus from a transfer company worryingly named Skidi Gonzales will take us to Morzine, about a couple of hours across the border in France, where we'll meet the others. I'm sat in the passenger seat, fumbling with my camera. A giant, heavy DSLR that I decided to bring at the last minute because I told myself the quality of the shots is going to be just that much better than with the phone. Yes, it's going to be a pain to carry the big boy around. I don't usually call it the big boy, by the way, and retrieve the big boy from my backpack each time I want to take a snap. 
But consider the superior clarity, the colour, the depth, the light. I start thinking about clarity, colour, depth and light. And then I imagine the kinds of pictures that over the next five days I'll be taking with the big boy. Alpine vistas in bright sunshine, some with children in the foreground. Group selfies on a ski lift. Everyone sat outside at lunch, waving over plastic trays laden with Cokes, burgers and chips. I imagine showing the pictures to my mum when we return. I imagine looking back over them when it's time to compile the next family photo album and printing some of them out to put in frames. I imagine there being lines in the printouts and spending about an hour and a half running the printer through its cleaning cycle and printing test page after test page until at last the lines have vanished or I've brought a new printer. Finally, I imagine hanging the pictures on the wall and passing them regularly for the next however many years until they get swapped out or we move or... I'm getting ahead of myself. And look, we've arrived at Stansted Airport. Welcome to Stansted, 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 Stansted Airport. Stansted Airport is about 30 miles northeast of London in Essex. In 2015, it was the fourth busiest airport in the United Kingdom after Heathrow, Gatwick and Manchester. Looking at Google reviews of the airport, a theme quickly emerges. People generally don't enjoy going through security. Some of these reviews have been edited, but they are genuine. Marianne says most of the security personnel seems to never heard about human dignity and basic human rights. There are so scared about terrorism, so they allowed those guys to behave like fascists in the name of safely. Is that good? I don't think so. And Dean says, horribly experienced. The security staff thinks they can behave in a military attitude. Without asking, they just grab your stuff without telling you why. Only after challenging the tart and threatening to call the manager, you get treated respectful. And finally, Sophie says, good flooring. Nice lighting. Toilets clean. Mary in WH Smith had good teeth and a chipper disposition. Have you got an iPad? Thank you. Once through security, which on this occasion is perfectly fine, we find a spot to sit down and wait for our gate to be announced. With my eldest son investigating Stansted shop opportunities with my wife, I checked in with the other two children about their holiday excitement levels. Which part of the holiday are you looking forward to? The beds. Why the beds? Because they just look really cool. Well, because they're sort of recessed in the and, walls. Yeah, and they're hot tub lots of Yeah, there's a hot tub. I know, but why is it outside? Because if you had it inside, it would splosh everywhere. I know, but isn't it like freezing cold outside? It is freezing cold, but that's the nice thing about it, because you have the contrast of how cold it is outside with how warm it is in the hot tub. Have another chip. If you want to whittle. A whittle. What goes up but never comes down? Um, Your age. My age. Are you excited about getting on the plane? I love aeroplanes. I'd love to live in an aeroplane, to be honest. Why would you want to live in an aeroplane? I'm just, like, sitting down next to the window and watching clouds. 
you like flying, Natty? Yeah. What's the best thing about it? <sighs> flying. As opposed to what? Nothing. What? 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 No. As opposed to nothing. You're flying. This is, there's nothing else. That's it. Sitting in a chair and you're flying. This is an airport announcement. Please could all the passengers for the holiday go onto the plane. Thank you. At Geneva Airport, we meet Dougie and Freddie and look around the arrivals lounge for the man from Skidi Gonzales, the transfer company who've been booked to take us to Morzine. Dougie spots a man wearing a large multicoloured sombrero and holding a piece of cardboard upon which someone has scrawled the name Barksdale. I bet that's our guy, says Doug. I certainly hope not. The only Barksdale I know was a naughty man in the wire. What's more, I suspect the sombrero fellow is not a native of Mexico. And yet he's wearing traditional head furniture originated by the mestizo cowboys of central Mexico. There's no way I'm getting in a van driven by someone who's comfortable with that level of cultural appropriation. Before I've had the chance to share my concerns with the rest of the group, they march off behind the smiling not-Mexican man to this Skidi Gonzales minibus waiting in the car park nearby. I wonder if there's time to shame the driver on social media, but it's taking too long to log into the airport Wi-Fi, so reluctantly, I pile into the minibus with everyone else. About an hour and a half later, the sun has set, and we're winding through the streets of Morzine, dropping off a few other passengers before arriving at our chalet. I'm aware that a little knot of anxiety has tied itself in my stomach. It's not the cultural appropriation, though of course, that still hurts. Now, I'm more worried about climate change, specifically the pronounced lack of snow. There are desultory patches of white here and there, but mostly it's just dirty curbside slush, and most of that's melted away. But the twinkling Christmas lights make everything look lovely, and soon we're pulling up outside our chalet. Flanked by similar-looking houses on a hillside road overlooking the rest of the town, Riverwood Lodge looks typically alpine, clad in light-coloured wood with sloping roof and a balcony from which our friends Dan, Lydia, Chris and their boys wave to us as we emerge from the minibus. I may have imagined them waving to us from the balcony, but that was the general tone of the arrival. Inside, we struggle up the narrow wooden staircase to deposit our bags in our very comfortable-looking rooms before gathering in the lounge-slash-dining area for a welcome glass of champagne served to us by Caroline and Mark, a married couple in their early 50s who are spending the season working as live-in hosts for Alley Cats and will be providing us with most of our meals for the week. We're all excited to see each other and impressed by the place, which, in the best way possible, is like a cliché of alpine comfort. My dad was fond of a German word that describes this kind of scene. Gemütlich. In recent years, the Danish word hygge seems to have been doing a similar job, conveying a sense of cosy conviviality, with whole books being written about the world of hygge as if the Danes invented the concept of soft, twinkly lighting, wood stoves and having friends. 
Caroline and Mark bring out little plates of delicious canapes to go with the champagne, which we demolish as the children explore the place. There's a TV room down here with loads of movies. They've got a Wii. I found the code for the Wi-Fi. Can we go in the hot tub? My wife tells me to calm down and stop shouting, just as Al from Alley Cats arrives to welcome us personally and give us a brief orientation talk, including information about local night spots, advice on which slopes might suit us best, and most importantly, where to write down which drinks and snacks we've snaffled from the well-stocked bar. Then he outlines for us the daily timetable. Uh, day starts with breakfast. We do breakfast from 7.30 to about 9.30, 10 o'clock. And then we do lifts up to the slopes. The, the van that's outside the chalet is exclusively for taking you guys around between the hours of 8.30 and 10.30 and then 4 and 6. And between those times, we have an encore driver which is shared across our three cater chalets that can come and pick you up. Uh, so when you get back from skiing, there will be tea, coffee and cake laid out for you. And then we will do kids' dinner at 6, if that works for you guys. Um, main dinner at 7.30. The timetable sounds good. I'm excited about the daily cake, but I'm even more excited by the on-call van to ferry us to and from the slopes. If you've been skiing before, you'll know that one of the less enjoyable parts of the experience is standing around cold, wet and tired at the end of the day in a scrum of people waiting for a bus to take you back into town where you'll have to trudge uncomfortably back to your chalet in your heavy boots while the children complain about being made to carry your skis. The Alley Cats van eliminates all that and takes us from our door to the lifts and back again as if we were giant movie star ponces. What's more, the tedious business of hiring our gear has also been made easy, thanks to a local company called Ski Mobile. By the time Al's talk is over, the Ski Mobile van is parked outside our chalet. Inside the van, we're each fitted with skis, boots, poles and helmets by cool young Scottish and Australian guys. Oh, mate, it's convenient. Giddy with our good fortune, we say thanks to Al and sit down to a delicious supper, followed by a few rounds of the name game. You know, the name game. A simple game that's fun for all the family. Liam, what? Are you Ronaldo? Uh, no. Uh, 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 Several rounds of the name game later, the young children head to bed, Dan gets his guitar out and goes into late-night Lou Reed mode, and I take advantage of the cold I've had since before Christmas to reenact aftershave voiceovers of the late 70s. Denim. For men who don't have to try. Too hard. <laughs> I'm dying. Good night, sweet ladies. Oh, ladies, good night. It's time to say goodbye. That night, as we lie sleeping, something wonderful happens. It snows. And when we wake, Morzine lies beneath what looks like a beautiful white duvet that's only been used once and hasn't gone all grey and weird after being washed with the other clothes. 
Eleven-year-old Liam barely touches his breakfast and rushes out to build his first snow person. How is it? Two balls or three balls? I mean, you can definitely get away with just a big ball for the body and a little one for the head. Yeah. Any way you want. Oh, we'll see. I think it'll be a ball like that for the body, then another ball like that, and then a ball like that for the head. I like it. I think. It's really good snow for snowballs, isn't it? It's sticking together nicely. It's the first time I see snow. First time you've seen snow? Yeah. Wow. Because you live in Spain normally, right? Yeah. What do you think of snow? It's amazing. It is amazing. Especially as when we arrived, it looked as if we were completely fucked on the snow front. In fact, it didn't snow until the third day of our visit. I just thought saying it was the first night would be more magical. Before the snow arrived, there were still many skiable slopes higher up the mountains, and the beginners were able to attend lessons on the nursery slopes thanks to a snow cannon spraying out pressurized water that freezes before it hits the ground. Morzine is one of the larger mountain villages in the area known as Port du Soleil, or Gateway to the Sun. From there, you can ski up and across to several other resorts, making it one of the largest skiing areas in the world. After only a couple of days of lessons, my son Nat was confident enough to join Dan and myself for a few afternoons on intermediate blue runs up above Morzine and around the spectacular village of Avoriaz. Built in the 60s, Avoriaz is a weird retro-futuristic collection of wood-covered apartment blocks that, from a distance, look rather like termite mounds. If you're not familiar with termite mounds, they look a bit like apartment blocks in a weird retro-futuristic ski resort. There are long, satisfying runs in and out of Avoriaz that manage to suit all three of us – Nat, the beginner, Dan, the expert, and Buckles, the Olympic champion. In truth, I ski rather like I drive. I get the job done, but I don't get many high fives for style or technique. Okie dokie. Scrapey. Ooh! Ooh, ooh, flippin' it. Ooh! It worked, Ooh! Out to nanny! Ha! This is steep. There are times when the weather gets bad or you find yourself on a run too bumpy or too steep for your skills when skiing gets exhausting, frustrating and sometimes a little frightening. But when conditions are fine and you discover a long sun-dappled run down through the trees and across wide, gently sloping expanses overlooking the villages far below, it feels like nothing else.
One of my favorite parts of the skiing day, or any day really, is lunch. Inside the restaurant slash cafe, it sounds like the Robocop family have come on holiday as people stomp about awkwardly in their ski boots. So we are here in uh, Avoriaz having a spot of lunch. Myself, Nat, and Dan. Nat's just polished off his burger. I'm having my jambon sandwich. And uh, we were talking about Michael Fassbender, the actor. And Nat, you're a fan? Yeah. I didn't know that. What do you like him in? Uh, Steve Jobs. The film Steve Jobs? Yeah, the film Steve Jobs. Why do you like that? Because I like Steve Jobs. He's a good guy. And I like the story behind it as well. You like the story of a man crazed by power to the extent that he neglects his responsibilities to his daughter and his yeah. wife. <laughs> it's true to life, really. Why do you like that? It's tense. Yeah. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> I'm just curious because it's a very sort of adult, dramatic, relationshipy, stagey film. You know, it's it's quite theatrical. But it gripped you, did it? Yep. Right. I think Steve Jobs was chill through the whole film. That's why I liked him. Chill? Yeah, chill. I'm going to let that slide. Back at the chalet, Liam and Hope resume construction work in the snow. But their job is made more challenging by the presence of Al and Kat's big, friendly dog, who would certainly never attack a human. But when it comes to snow people, watch out. Yeah. Oh, oh no. dog, dog. Look at what the dog does, look. Dogs just trash your... Look at what it does. <laughs> look! Sit! <laughs> what, the dog jumps for snowballs in a very endearing way. Snowball. What's the dog's name? Murray. Murray. Murray's very sweet. What kind of dog is he? I have no idea. A nice one. He's He's a nice black and white furry one. I know a lot about dogs, I can tell that's the breed. Nice, black and white and furry. (laughs) And um, he jumps for snowballs, doesn't he? No, he can sit for snowballs too. Does he, yeah? He absolutely loves snowballs. He does destroy snowmans. Don't destroy the snowmans, okay? You destroy her! Look, Mum, I'm making a snowman and also look at this. Sit! Sit! Good girl! It's a boy! (laughs) Mummy is a boy! Liam, Mummy's a boy! Evenings at the chalet unfold as I imagine they would for your average Russian oligarch, East End hoodlum or gangster rapper. Cake, hot tub, canapes, supper, name game and Jenga tournament. Oh, Weird Al, oh, Weird Al. No, do that method with your index. Oh, yes. Oh, it's dreamlike. No, he's going on the side. 26. Didn't want to see that. 26. Did not want to see that. Then it's time for a family sing-along, this time led by 16-year-old Ale, playing guitar and singing inappropriate songs with his 11-year-old brother, Liam.
that by? Jamie C. Jamie T. Yeah. yeah. Jamie T's got some great records. Is he? Really yeah, good. this is off yeah. his third record. No, second though. Yeah, this is his second. As ever, with all good holidays, the time goes too fast. But before the week is up, myself and Dougie seize an opportunity to take one last chairlift up to a bar halfway up the mountain above Morzine for a drink and a rambly chat. I'm on a bus. I'm on a bus. You're not on a bus. I'm not on a bus. You're very not on a bus. Well, in a way, I'm on a ski ski airbus, <laughs> uh, also known as a chairlift, and it is coming towards the end of the day. The sun is low in the sky. The children have gone off to um, take the telecabine gondola thing down the slope. They're going to get picked up and go back to the chalet and ponce around. Myself and Dougie are taking advantage of a little childcare window because my wife is looking after <laughs> Dougie's son, Freddie. Yeah. And uh, well, we're going to have a little sneaky beer drink. What an absolute treat. Yeah. It's unbelievable. Because it is. Des- describe the scene for us, if you will, Doug. This, uh, having never been skiing before and, or been to a place like this before, it is one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen, this landscape. It's extraordinary. There are huge Christmas trees covered in snow. The Alps, are, it is the Alps, isn't it? I'm pretty sure it's I the think Alps. it's the Alps, are kind of towering above us on all sides. You can see Mont Blanc over the hill. Because we're and very close to Switzerland, so it's mm. real Toblerone country around here is what I think of Toblerone it and Heidi. Toblerone and Heidi. <laughs> And it is, as you say, spectacularly beautiful. And we got lucky because it snowed uh, a couple of nights ago. Mm. Before then, everything was a little bit bald and brown, like my... (laughs) (laughs) I don't know where you're going to go with that. (laughs) Where do you think? (laughs) You can't can't go anywhere after that. (laughs) Oh, God. I'm going to die. <laughs> die in a chairlift. What a way to go. Having a little coffee there. Yeah. Um, you had the same cough as me, right? Yeah, we've been having sympathetic illnesses. I think everyone the in the UK, a lot of people in the UK got this uh, same ailment before Christmas. I don't know if it's the same sort of thing that the Queen got. Maybe. I hope the Queen's okay, man. She's 90. She's 90 and she's suffering from a heavy lingering cold. And it's, you know, mm. after 2016, every time... Uh, a legend or a famous person or a, you know... Complains of a sniffle. You, you just, just think, think oh, well. see it. Do you think it'll make people value their celebrities more, maybe be a bit less cynical about... Uh, you would hope so, but you also think maybe it just increases bloodlust. Right. As people become kind of desensitised to the volume of yeah. carnage that goes on. I've noticed that BBC Online seem to report 
more minor celebrity deaths than they used to, mm-hmm. just to sort of feed the appetite. It seems like, uh, yeah, the 2016 created this yeah. appetite, which is ex- increasing exponentially. <laughs> exactly. You wake up in the morning, you're like, right, come on, who's died? Yeah, so there's a kind of vague feeling of disappointment. Yeah. Oh, Adam <laughs> Buxton. Well, I saw the Adam and Joe show once, but come on, there's got to be someone better than that. I heard him coughing in a chairlift, <laughs> but I didn't think it was that bad. <laughs> but yeah, it is amazing. And this is one of the most beautiful sights in the world. And I was saying to Doug that I think one of the great things about skiing, if you're lucky enough to be able to do it, is that you are interacting with some of the most spectacular scenery in the world in a way that I don't think you do with other holidays. You know, you might go to some beautiful island or something, and I guess you're interacting with that, aren't you? You're going swimming. Mm-hmm. But you're not travelling around in quite the same way as you do when you're skiing. Um, and it's kind of that thing where it's intense bursts of exercise or kind of effort and mild terror and then long periods like this of total calm and beauty yeah it's a very unusual dynamic because like I say having never done it before I didn't really know what to expect Um, and it's just it has been unbelievable what was your impression of skiing beforehand then did you did you have some sort of vague prejudice about the oh yeah I I think I had a vague kind of inverse snobbery about it that was a kind of Thing for totties <laughs> for annoying tops yeah, yeah which is sort of true <laughs> i mean it is you know it's not the cheapest uh, option no for a holiday there's all the gear and there's ski passes and it's well, ex- that, it's an expensive business that was the other thing i also just thought it would be an enormous amount of hassle yeah for not a lot of reward like, uh, like you, all the carrying stuff around and all the not knowing where to go and just huge expanses of area that you're kind of a bit lost. And which it can be. I mean, <laughs> it very easily can become that. I think the thing with skiing holidays is you've got to get used to the idea that you will have good days and bad days. Mm. Some days will just be a disaster, either because of the weather, you'll go up and it's really, there's no visibility and it's really cold and it's snowing or it's windy. And you get wet and, and oh, it's all you want to do is get back and go to bed. Get in the hot tub. Yeah. And, then, and you're stomping around in the boots and the, trying to carry your skis and you're skidding over. And They are hard to walk in these boots, but that aside, me and Freddie haven't actually had a bad day. It's, been, it's the last day tomorrow and it has just been completely brilliant. And this is the I first only... time either of you have skied and, yeah. and you've done really well. I mean, you haven't... Did you find it a frustrating process to no, get going? I really enjoyed every bit of it. It's and Freddie's. My, I mean, part of you know my anxiety beforehand was maybe about how Freddie would get on with it. Yeah, but he loves it and he seems very into it. And really, he, he said in the chairlift and the way up on this one actually, and the way up earlier on, he said skiing is like magic. I feel like I am a wizard. <laughs> so it's been, it's been really sweet and it's been a lovely thing for us to do. There are frequent magical moments, I think, when you are skiing and you've got a good day mm. and you're going down and it's a pretty easy run, maybe through the trees and the sun's shining through the trees and it is like being in a dream, you know? Yeah, absolutely. There is something quite unreal about it, particularly here. I mean, I don't know about any, anywhere else. I would say this is one of the prettier places I've been to to go skiing because you can get some very modern places which are very high which is good for the skiers but they tend to be a bit brutalist right and um you know it's like big giant white dunes almost where you go skiing and here it's all little 
Christmassy enclaves. Yeah, it's very, very Christmassy. Okay. Oh, we better let's get off the thing. Get off this. This is where we actually yeah. have to do something. Oh, oh mate. Okay. Oh. A couple of people got off the lift there and cruised right into the um, netting barrier. Fell over. They were being helped up by the lift operator. And um, yeah. And here is. I mean, this is like it's like a joke. How picturesque and postcardy this little restaurant slash cafe is up here on the top of the mountain. It's called uh, Vafieux. Le Vafieux. I don't know what that means. Right. So we are sat outside this incredibly cutesy uh, well it looks like a kind of gingerbread house from a yeah. hans christian anderson story love hearts on the eaves little birds and uh, it's all very very sweet and there's some as dougie says christmas trees do we know the names of the actual trees some kind of spruce norman pine i don't know or do, do you know the names of trees no neither do i'm I. not one of those guys neither am i I don't know the names of many things. I don't know the names of trees, flowers. No. Um, cars. No. Uh, you don't drive, do you? No. I've, I actually failed my test recently. Did you? <laughs> Mate. <laughs> no. It was a, a shame for me. Yeah. It was quite humiliating, really. Did you fail badly? Uh, yeah, quite badly. I just got back from Japan the day before, so I was so jet-lagged I could barely think, Yeah. let alone drive. That's my excuse. Sure. And, um, yeah, it was one of those where he had to take over the brake because oh. it was about to just smash into kind of somebody's big 4 by 4 which had suddenly appeared. Yeah. And it was about halfway through, and I thought, well, I should just, we should just stop now. We should just not continue with this. Yeah. There's no point. I know, I remember that. I fell twice, I think, before I passed, and I had those moments, and it, I just thought, come on. I've mounted the curb. <laughs> Who are we kidding? There's no, there's no real yeah, reason just... to carry on with this charade, is there? <laughs> just get out while the car's still moving. <laughs> let, them, let him take Bye. over. <laughs> I had this instructor called Kwame from Nigeria. He was a very serious person and, uh, you know, just into the whole hard work and, and taking the whole thing seriously angle, which is quite right. Mm -hmm. But he was a little bit terrifying as well. And um, it was very stressful, the whole shebang. Although, finally, he was... This is a boring story. I'm not even going to finish it. <laughs> I mean, the story finishes with me passing the test. Hooray! Which, Hooray. I, which I know you did. And anyway. I gave Kwame uh, a present to say thanks. End of the story. Well, it's better than mine, because my, my driving instructor f just quit... Oh, did he? She, Judy, she just quit immediately after I failed my test. And I don't know if it was me that drove, oh. her, over, drove her over the edge. As it were. As it were. Yeah. But yeah, she um, she just, I said, okay, I'm ready to start again. She said, I'm not doing it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing a different job. Right. Now. I was like, oh, yeah, that's a shame. So I've still to find another driving you, you are going to get back on the horse, though. I'm going to try so and speak. I'm going to try and get back. If I can ski, I can drive, surely. Right. Yeah, yeah, because there are people who are, you know, they're going to flap whatever situation you put them in. Yeah. And they maybe know that themselves, so they decide, man, driving's probably not for me. Mm -hmm. And so you could have been one of those people. You could have come out here 
and taking one look at all the gear and the boots and the poles and the this and the that and all the getting on the lifts, every little bit of beginning to ski is, is challenging. Of, yes, it's the first day you're kind of going, what, how does this work? Yeah. But um, yes, just allowing it yourself to go with the, the flow. I think that's probably a lesson learned for driving. And you and Freddie just adapted brilliantly to the world of skiing. Well, it was, it was just... Watch well, see what everybody else does and do that. And you had a nice instructor, right? Pietro was fantastic. My wife certainly seems to think yes, so. Yes, I think there's quite a few crushes on Pietro. Yeah. <laughs> Where's he from? Italy. Italy. He has a house on the Italian side of Mont Blanc. Oh, mate. He's extremely good looking. He really is, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, extremely handsome. Yeah. Very good with no, the kids. No, he's a charming fellow. Yeah. So he speaks like five languages yeah. and he's nice and he's very good with children. And yeah, my wife and <laughs> Chris's wife, Lydia, they were just uh, very excited They're about going back and doing some more lessons with Pietro. <laughs> Understandably, he's I, delightful. I think skiing nowadays might be easier than it was when I did it because the last time I went skiing was about 20 years ago mm -hmm. and um, everything like the skis are shorter now than they right. used to be I think they realized that actually they could make them just as fast but more uh, but less unwieldy if they shortened them so um, everything's a bit more manageable yeah and you can get started that much quicker because when we started me and my brother and sister when my dad took us for the first time. What age were you? We must have been about Freddie's age, you know, eight, wow. eight or nine. Okay. It was a whole week of lessons before we were able to go on any runs ourselves. And every lesson was like, okay, this lesson, we are going to edge down bit by bit for the whole day. <laughs> you put your skis parallel and you go a tiny little bit down the oh, slope. Brutal. Yeah, you dig your sides of the skis in and this teaches you going down bit by bit. <laughs> it's useful. And tomorrow we learn turning round <laughs> and facing the other direction. Okay, see you then. So it wasn't really thrill-packed. Not fun for a good seven days. No. No, and that's the thing. That, that, um, it seems like they just want to make it fun immediately. Yeah. And and kind of actually get you moving. So it's been great. Except for the one woman who shouted at Freddie. What happened there? It was his first, literally his first day and he was going down and he was doing all right and didn't have any poles and he was doing okay. And then he fell on his bum and just kind of sped up and kind of was veering towards a group of three kids that were getting top of this woman. And he, he barely kind of bumped into her, but she turned around and started kind of yelling at him in French. Whoa. And like giving him a big, bad, hard time. And he was just like freaked out. So and you then, went over. And so I, I was still couldn't, move very well in the skis at that point. It was only your second day, was yeah. it? Yeah, so I think first or second day. Right. So I was kind of trying to get over there to stop this situation. You know, it was like, bad thing happening over there and I couldn't move across. Yeah. It was like a dream. And uh, eventually I got there. And then she said, she started trying to, shouting at me, saying, uh, two years ago I had my leg broken by a boy, an English boy. Because she was saying, you and English. And then she went, and she said, an English boy broke my leg and I now have a metal knee. You English, you go too fast, you English. And I was like, okay, just don't stop. You need to stop speaking now. I'm just going to make sure that my son's okay. And did you get all Braveheart on her? How dare you call me English? <laughs> I didn't. I was, I was that close to kind of <laughs> pulling that card out and going, well, actually, 
Love. <laughs> I think you'll find I'm fucking Scottish. <laughs> but I didn't, I didn't go for that. I just yeah. went over and made sure Freddie was okay. Because I knew it was just, she looked a wee bit naughty. Right. I felt like it would... Uh... It's got to be a stressful job, eh? Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Maybe she was just having an off day. Having an off day, but with a metal knee. With a metal knee because of, because of the English. Yeah, because of the English. You should have said... This is exactly why we just left the EU. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm happy about that. <laughs> the cliche is that the French are kind of grumpy and they don't really like the English, but it's really not true. It's not true at all. They're nice people. Yeah, I love France. I love it. I, I, could, I could see myself one day spending quite a lot of time. Yeah, a lot of Brits end up in France, don't they, for yeah. good reason. And you must, you've must you played a lot of shows in France, presumably? Played in France, yeah, quite a lot. We played in Paris this year, or last year, rather. I keep forgetting that New Year's been. Yeah. Um... Yeah, we've played played a lot of times in France. We've had some amazing shows, in, in, particularly in Paris. I mean, we played in Bataclan. That was one of our top five ever shows, the Bataclan. Right. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. When did you play there? This is quite sad. I, I work out when shows were by what my uniform was uh -huh. <laughs> for that tour, so I guess that was 2007. Uh, Boy With No Name tour, probably. You don't do the Coldplay uniform thing, though, do you? No, what, all of us matching? No, yeah. That would be absurd. Have you ever sat down as a band and had a sartorial discussion? Like, come on, guys. <laughs> no. Fran comes out with some sketches. Here's the new direction. <laughs> no. I think we should all do our hair a little bit like this and spray big pink blobs on our trousers. And have big pink beers. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> He's done that. He has done that, it's oh. true. But um, no, we have never sat down and, very obviously we have never sat down and arranged how we look. Right. <laughs> it's always just... You're just regular guys. We're just regular guys. But I have this thing where I just can't be bothered thinking about what I'm going to wear on stage every show. So I pick something at the start of a tour and just, that's me. Oh, that's your uniform? That's my uniform Got for, you. for that tour. So then you do you take out multiple items? Mm -hmm. Right. Multiples of whatever it is that I've chosen. Brilliant. And I just stick to that. It's, it's very easy. It makes yeah. things very simple. Of course, because if you're on stage, then you don't... I mean, I end up... I've just lost it completely as far as kind of, <laughs> I've made some terrible decisions for things I wear like at one point I thought that it would be a good idea someone paid me a compliment on my legs on your legs yeah because uh -huh. I did a thing on the bug tv show where I danced around in uh stockings and high heels I think I was trying to be Grace Jones a little bit all right and someone said oh you got nice legs so I was like oh I've got nice legs. Well, gonna, <laughs> this is new. Yeah, that's good. I've never had a nice thing on my body before. <laughs> I'm going I'm to work this. And so I, I had um, these kind of cycle, well, they call cycle leggings, right? Right. Um, well, you are a cyclist. You, yeah. You, you know, you cycle a lot. Right. So, so you know, I, sometimes I wear them when it's cold. And, so I thought, I'm going to wear these on stage. <laughs> for, for bug shows? Yeah. Stuff? like when I do shows because then people will be able to see my legs and uh, also at the time I was wearing these um, blue, yeah I was wearing these blue boots they're all blue uh-huh and also I had a quite a blue jacket which I still wear sometimes um, so I look like a kind of that's an extraordinary decision yeah so I look like this weird creepy old smurf with Max wall legs yeah and I just had it in my head, this is a good look. 
And then, of course, you know, I saw a picture of myself. And, and what did it look? Cried I I, I'm for a day. Trying hard to picture. It looked hot. It looked grotesque. <laughs> it was horrible. <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, but you know, I've never really had a look where I've seen a picture of myself and thought, "Oh yeah, brilliant stuff." Just keep it simple. I mean, the last show I did with Joe actually before mm-hmm. Christmas, I ended up partly because I sort of ran out of time to think about what I was going to wear. I just ended up going on stage and you know, my my kind of uh, fleece top and <laughs> jeans, looking like one of Time Team, basically. That's okay? I suppose it's fine. But, you know, when you're younger, you have dreams about, like, oh, you know, if you're going to be on stage... You really should think about yeah, it. Yeah, you're going to have a look. I yeah. mean, especially in comedy. Look at Noel Fielding and Russell Brand and all these dandies of comedy. Um, the dandies of comedy. You know, there are quite a few of them. There's loads, and they. To mention, he's a dandy of comedy. Right, right. You they've got a look. They've got a strong look. Mm. But uh, and you know sometimes that's half the battle, isn't it? Well, people like to feel like, oh well, I know what this is. Yeah. You know, I know what this is going to be. Just and I don't have to really do. It's like a lot of work is cut out for uh-huh. me, you know. Especially if you're an individual, I think it really helps the audience as mm. well. And also. You're being a bit clownish. I guess that's one thing I was thinking when I was putting on my leggings. It's like, well, if I look a bit ridiculous, that's okay, because I'm a silly person. <laughs> but then that feeling didn't last when I saw the pictures. When you saw the picture, it was genuinely... Pu- I just thought, well, there's, there's silly and there's sad. <laughs> and uh, I've gone too far into the sad. You're listening to the podcast of Adam Buxton. It's a podcast very brilliant and intelligent. And you're intelligent to listen Bravo à vous. Vous n'avez pas poupi passe ou passe ploupi. When did you get signed? Um, September 96. So I joined, I actually joined kind of in the spring of 96. We moved down to London. Um, uh, about a month after I joined, we all found a house and found managers, Ian and Colin, and a rehearsal room. Went down to London and just started doing, getting ourselves together. And did you have, as art school boys, highfalutin ideas about this is how our album covers are going to look? And, I mean, you didn't. We've established that you didn't have ideas about how you should present yourselves, necessarily. No, it was... It was we, we never really had that. It was, it was very much two separate things. It's strange. The visual side of... of the visual art side of things was... Um, it, was it was always a separate thing for me because I, I did sculpture... And music and the, the two music and art kind of ran in parallel. And for Franny, it was like he quit art school in second year, and so and to to commit to the band. So it was like music took over from that side of things for him. And for Andy, music was always the primary thing. He was doing uh, jewelry and silversmithing, which is not really yeah, which is not ideal for record covers. Yeah. So it was in different ways for the three of us it was two separate things uh-huh. so we then decided to pin our flags to the, the mast of the band and you were always sort of straight ahead just blokes playing all you wanted to do was rock right? all we wanted to do was rock that is still our, as Franny says on stage if that were Travis for a country that would be our national anthem and that's despite the fact that all of you are into lots of different music I mean you like me are a big Bowie fan and you like your art rock and mm-hmm. All that sort of experimental stuff, but you're, but you keep coming back to sort of solid Beatles type. I th- yeah, I, th- I think way we, of going about things. Yeah, we're into kind of similar stuff, and you've got Neil, who's into jazz and fusion, mm-hmm. 
and Andy is into all kinds of bizarreness. So we all have our kind of left field areas, but the thing that we do best together and the thing that we kind of enjoy doing most together is pretty much kind of the simple pop song. Mm-hmm. I mean, personally, I love a pop song and I love the act of writing three-minute pop songs. It's exciting to kind of find new melodies or new accord structure that you haven't done before or a turn of phrase. And I still see a lot of... Um, area to explore just yeah. in that little art form exactly and it's you know, quite it's fun in fact thing. having those boundaries and um, sometimes working within those strictures mm. verse chorus verse chorus middle eight verse chorus you know it's fooling around with that and seeing what you can do within that is terrific fun. well it's funny you should say that because when making this re- the most recent record everything at once um Frank and i kind of had a we sit down before after we finished touring where you stand and um the hardest thing about making Where You Stand was the fact that when we took the songs to radio, they were like, yeah, they're great. Uh, the first two singles, Where You Stand and Moving, they were like, yep, yeah, great, but you need to take a minute and a half out of them. They're too uh, long. Right. And we were like, oh. And that took ages. It was me, Michael, and Fanny just emailing back and forth versions that we'd edited. Michael, your producer. Yeah, Michael Elbert. And, um, and just couldn't get it to work. And... You know, once you've spent all that time, weeks and months, writing and making something, producing something that you think is as it should be, to start chopping it up, you end up giving them the radio a, a version of what, of a song, but not the actual thing. <laughs> so when Franny and I had to sit down before we made everything at once, we said, OK, let's try and make them as close to three minutes as we can. So, and that was the, the, it's the only time we've ever done that, given ourselves a kind of... A, a, a limited palette or um, an instruction if you like an, an oblique strategy mm. um, before we've even started writing but it really worked and I really still enjoy doing that thing maybe it's a lack of imagination or a lack of ability to kind of branch out but I still feel like there's a lot in there mm, no I think so so you get signed in 96 mm. first album Good Feeling mm-hmm. pretty straight ahead solid rock, mm-hmm. pop, fun. How'd you hook up with Nigel Godrich? Um, there was a journalist called Leo something. I'm ashamed to say I can't remember his second name. Leo, who died. And there was a benefit in London for his family. And Franny and I were there. We'd been interviewed by him. And this was in 98. So this was a, the year after Good Feeling came out. And Nigel and Colin Greenwood were there. Oh yeah, and that and Colin started talking to us. Colin and, from radio, yeah. that is. And Colin started talking to us, and he was kind of like being really nice and asking about the band. He kind of, and I was like, oh, it's yeah, blah blah blah, chatting away, and then I said, and what do you do? <laughs> and he said, oh, I'm in a band as well. And I was like, oh, great. What are you called? And he went, oh, Radiohead. And I was like, oh, don't. Uh, it was one of those kind of please swallow, let the ground swallow me up kind yeah. of thing. But he was so nice. And then Nigel got chatting and he was brilliant and really interesting and fun. And him and Franny really bonded actually. And um, so when we started working in The Man Who, uh, we were working first with um, Mike Hedges in France. And that was the kind of the first sessions, and then Nigel came on board after we got back to London, and he really took it into another realm, kind of sonically. 
And, um, so did he retain any of the work that Mike Hedges had done? Yeah, some of the basic tracks, but it was like maybe two or three the basic tracks were, were, were kept. It was it was really fantastic working with Nigel. And I mean, we'd, obviously we, we've worked with him since the man who we did the Invisible Band, the whole thing together. He worked with us a bit on The Boy With No Name. How would you characterise then what he did for you when you were doing The Man Who and how he changed things? He actually just made things more interesting. It's like he brings his kind of slightly left-leaning, left-field kind of tastes mm-hmm. and ways of working to our kind of slightly more kind of conservative, if you like, ways of ways of doing things. And it was just at that point, it was a really perfect marriage. It was just, it was an I, a, a kind of an ideal mix of the, the two ways of approaching how to make music. And he kind of took us out of our comfort zones and made us do things that we wouldn't otherwise have done. And the studio became a much more creative place. Can you think of any examples of those? I think when we were doing Driftwood, I remember... After we got the basic track, the basic kind of backing track, um, it was just like, okay, well, it's a bit of a free-for-all, so you had me playing the glass harmonica. And it was just basically just wine glasses, but lots of them uh-huh. tuned to different things. And things, and just making things that didn't really make any sense in the context of the song, but just lots and lots of Andy was doing loads of stuff, Franny was doing loads of stuff, and he was doing percussion. There was things just kind of happening and um, with synths and you know, space echoes and all this stuff. And then he was like, okay, off you go. <laughs> and I was like, what? And just like, uh, yeah, just leave, just leave me, give, give me an hour. And um, I was like, okay. And then so we, I went out and we went out for a, for a beer and then I had to go back. I left my wallet or something. And I went back in and it was like, as I remember it, it's probably not right, but it was like he was clambering over the mixing desk, just like, Almost like he was using all four limbs to mix, and I was like, "What are you doing, Nigel?" And he was like, "I'm, I'm just making it amazing." <laughs> and I was like, "Right, I'll leave you to it. That's fine." And that was kind of what he did. He made, he just made. He, we we know we got, we knew we had something together before of us. He just elevated it, you know. Mm. Made, made it amazing. Yeah, he's got an amazing way of recording things to. <laughs> Make them sound very otherworldly and, and but still very warm and yeah yeah warmth is a good a good word to use. Well, I remember that he and I talked about Hunky Dory and that mm. was a, a touchstone for him was how warm that record is for mm-hmm. Bowie, you know, and that he he wanted to bring some of that to a lot of the stuff he worked on. It's his favourite ever drum sound. Is it? Yeah. So, and it is a great drum sound. It's yeah. just that really kind of dead. But you can just, you feel it in the room, you know. That's Ken Scott, isn't it? Who did Ken that one? Ken Scott, who did Hunky Dory. Yeah. Yeah. Clever man. I know. Brilliant. So, '99, the man who comes out. Mm-hmm. And did it hit pretty fast, or was it? No, it was a bit of a slow burn. What was the first single from there? The first single was "Right to Reach You," which went to 14, something like that, I think. And then Driftwood. It was 13. <laughs> and, uh, but, but that was kind of how it worked. In the first album, it was U16 Girls was 40. All I would do is rock was 39. <laughs> Tides of the Nights was 30. It was like, it was like, it was always going to be a, a long slog. A long trudge. Yeah. But yeah, the, the, the record, I can't, I can't remember what number it went out. I think it went top 10, as far as I remember the album. And, um, and then it just started kind of. Plummeting down. Plummeting down quite quickly. But then a few wee things happened. Really odd little things. 
it's when we played Glastonbury in 99 it was all beautiful sunshine and then we played Why Is It Always Raining Me and it started raining and uh-huh. it was like just one of those bizarre little you know accidents so everyone hated you so everyone hated us yeah everyone was standing <laughs> in the audience just looking at us kind of glaring thanks like Scottish guys you've ruined our weekend thanks for bastards. ruining the fun Scottish men <laughs> <laughs> or in the kind of summer clothes like <laughs> And actually, we didn't have a very good show that day. We were kind of we came off stage going, "Oh man, okay." At least nobody's going to watch it on the telly. And then we got back home that night, and it was all over the telly because everyone's like, "Oh, Travis made it rain." It's like, "Oh, what a peculiar thing." So that performance is just getting shown over and over and over. And that was a very peculiar moment because then it suddenly switched, and the record stopped falling down the charts and started kind of climbing back up and so by the time we got to the festival I think it was number one I mean thinking about it you're like that can't possibly happen like that but that is right and it stayed at number one for a while right for ages and it it went back to went back to number one three times I think it was number one at New Year going into 2000. So it was mm. that, it's like with these funny little landmarks where it was number one at the change of the millennium. It's a very strange little thing. But I remember Andy Mack being delighted. Andy McDonald, who was boss of the uh, record company at the time, he was just delighted by that. He wouldn't stop going on about it. Yeah. It's history. You're number one at the millennium. Yeah. <laughs> so much of it is your luck. You know, you, you work as hard as you can and you do the best stuff that you you can do but so much of it is, is luck and mm. happenstance there was a certain point at which Coldplay suddenly emerged on the scene <laughs> and uh, as far as outside some outsiders looking in might have thought oh Coldplay have come along they've kind of stolen Travis's thunder was that something that you guys were thinking were you stomping around going ah oh, damn it I'm really trying ge- genuinely trying to think if, if there were points where we thought that I think maybe 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 there were points where you were like oh man they're becoming absolutely massive and oh that was our ball you know yeah. <laughs> but you couldn't actually find two more different bands than us in Coldplay in the way that we go about things yeah because Coldplay very much have a plan in place I remember talking to Chris Martin he was saying about kind of writing songs with a massive audience in mind. He's a great melodicist, but he's very much a magpie in that, you, you know, they will take little bits of what's happening at that moment, what's successful at that time. So, you know, when they started, we were kind of, I guess, the biggest band in Britain. And so it was, okay, we'll take a bit of that. And then it was, we'll take a bit of U2, a bit of Arcade Fire. And, and that's, that's the way... I mean, that's the way Bowie did it. You yeah, know, of course. Taking bits and pieces and putting and stitching it all together. So it's not a bad thing, but it's just a, a different way of doing it. We've never really done that. We've always... I suppose it's maybe one of the things that people find irritating about is that it's not earnest, but kind of heartfelt. I suppose. You're, we always write to one person with somebody in mind. So that's why the songs are the way they are, because they're personal. And so over the years, you must have come across some extraordinary people here and there, <laughs> playing festivals and just bumping into people wherever you go. Yeah. Are there any memories that stand out? Meeting Boy was right. one of the great... I mean, we met him three times, I think. Did you? Mm. And um, 
And did you ever have any sort of meaningful conversations? Because presumably a lot of these meetings take place kind of backstage yeah, or whatever. At awards and stuff parties like, that. And things like that. When everyone's in a slightly weird altered state anyway, you're not really able to have proper meaningful discussions. It's almost always like that, but with Bowie it was... The best one was when I went to see him play at Wembley Arena on the reality tour. Oh, so 2004? 2004, yeah. And... Um, went backstage because some of our crew were working on that tour and so we had the passes and all that and went backstage and before the show and I was talking to Mike Carson and Gaylan Dorsey and I was like this is brilliant and I, you know because like yourself just extreme boy file yeah. you know and Mike Garson was talking about the fact that they'd been doing the Laughing Gnome uh-huh. at Soundcheck which I thought was hilarious and he was laughing away and then um, after the show we went backstage and David came in and he came around and said oh, hello it's nice to see you and I was like oh, hello and um, I kind of was thinking what am I going to say what? and I went so what was this Mike was saying about you doing the laughing gnome and sound check and he's like oh yeah that's right we were trying it out and it was quite enjoyable quite a, quite a lot of fun I said are you going to put it in the set and he went Oh, I don't know. We're in Glasgow tomorrow. Well, maybe we could uh, give them a couple of verses. A taste of the gnome. They'd <laughs> like that, the glass blowers. Glass blowers, Glasgowers. That's not what you call it, is it? <laughs> <laughs> I was just ending myself. He never played it, though, in the No, he didn't. And then we got a photo taken, and he was... <laughs> it was funny, he had, his, he had his arm around me, and he just kind of quietly said to me, he said, Chin down, look up, choose an expression, stay still. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, that's brilliant. Wait. This is an advert for Squarespace. I took one look at that website, and I knew that the woman I have been living with is not my wife. I'd never been any good with computers, so when I showed the website that I had built to sell my paintings to Tom, he just refused to believe that I had made it. And he started telling people that the government had taken his wife and replaced her with an AI. But Debbie had made the website herself. After hearing an advert on a podcast, she had visited squarespace.com slash Buxton and done a free trial. They had all these professional-looking templates there, so I chose one I liked, and I started typing into it. And then I dragged in some pictures, I uploaded a video. Before I knew it, I had a website. I've seen The Matrix. I know that you need big green numbers and a long leather coat to build a website. It's just not that easy. But it was that easy. And when Debbie decided she wanted to purchase her new website, she remembered the offer code from the podcast. I typed in Buxton and I saved 10%. I was jumping up and down and shouting in your face at Tom. And it was around then that he started with the conspiracy theory. Why don't you go to squarespace.com slash Buxton, Tom? And you could see how easy it is to build your own website. Because that's exactly what they want me to do. Check it out. Continue. There we go. That was Dougie Payne of Travis there. With some top posing advice straight from the mouth of David Bowie himself. Thanks to Dougie for talking to me. And thanks, big thanks, to Al and Cat from Alley Cat's Mountain Holidays for being our hosts and looking after us so well. We had a wonderful, memorable time, all of us, and we felt very lucky to be there. 
Apologies for the occasional weird audio quality during my conversation with Dougie just there. Went a bit sort of um, weird and robot-y a couple of times. Only on my voice, though, I noticed. It was my inner robot uh, coming out there. My wife. The thing is that my regular audio recorder, the one that I'm using right now, the Sony PCM-M10, now sadly discontinued, uh, malfunctioned temporarily, shortly before we left for Morzine. So I picked up a very small dictaphone. This is a good story, isn't it? This is a story for uh, dictaphone fans, for digital recorder fans. Anyway, I picked up a small dictaphone to take out to Morzine, and only when it came to actually editing the stuff that I'd recorded did I discover that not only was the quality not the best, but some of the files were also irreparably wonky, like the part of the interview with Dougie. It was distraughtening, but I hope not too distracting. So, listeners, podcasts, quartermasters, however you identify, how are you doing? Um, it's been a while since the last edition of the podcast went up, and um, I mean, yeah, it's been pretty quiet. I mean, yeah, you know, there's the apocalypse. You've got to say that, don't you? That's the thing to say. Oh, it's the apocalypse. That's the fashionable stance. You can't say, oh, no, you'll be all right, <laughs> because then you look like you're naive and um, you're a rube, which may be true. But I did read a thing the other day where this psychologist, Amos Tversky, was talking about pessimism and saying the thing about pessimists is that they end up living the bad thing twice. The first time when they worry about it and the second time when it happens. So you may as well be an optimist. I thought that was quite a good way of looking at things. Although the pessimists will tell you, ah, yes, but if you're an optimist, then you'll sit back and you won't do anything about the bad situation. So the, the pessimists, you need the pessimists to uh, keep things in check. There's two ways of looking at it, you see. <laughs> All right. Um, what was I going to say? Oh, yeah. So as far as the podcast goes, we'll be back to kind of the conversation format next week and I can tell you now that next week's guest will I think be Louis Theroux yay mixing things up and then I'll just go back to surprising you guest wise from then on the main thing I wanted to tell you about that's been happening over the last few weeks is that a small company called really quite digital have been putting together a new Adam Buxton app aimed mainly I guess at listeners to this podcast and the app will enable you to browse all the previous episodes of the podcast, as well as uh, downloading new ones for you automatically. And it will provide one convenient place from which to access posts on my blog and uh, to check out my YouTube videos and my scintillating tweets, that kind of thing. It will also link you to a site from which you can purchase specially created Adam Buxton podcast t-shirts, prints, mugs, etc. Those are in production as I speak, should be available in the next few weeks. And there'll also be various bits of exciting bonus content for app users. For example, 
Many of the jingles and bits of music that I've made for this podcast will be available to browse and listen to. And there'll be some old Adam and Joe podcast jingles there too. And a few little videos and bits of bonus audio that are exclusive to the app. Most of that stuff will be free, but there will be some extra, extra content that will live behind a tiny paywall. And that will enable us to pay, I hope, for the construction and upkeep of the app as well as to help fund the production of future episodes and keep me in Middle Premium Puddings. Speaking of Middle Premium Pudding, the live show that I taped at the beginning of the year at the BFI South Bank will also be seeing the light of day in the next few weeks, I hope, just finalising things with uh, Go Faster Stripe. My fault there, dragged my heels over the summer. Buckles, I'm sorry. Anyway, so all that is to come. Gosh, by Christmas, the mere mention of my name should make you physically ill. Anyway, I'll let you know when the app is up and running. But in the meantime, I think that's probably enough, isn't it? Thank you very much to Seamus Murphy-Mitchell for production support. Thanks to Acast for hosting this and many other great podcasts. And thanks to you for listening. Uh, I appreciate all your messages, which I continue to receive and enjoy, coming in via my SoundCloud page, um, via the blog, and I hope once the app is up and running, that'll be a good place to leave messages too. Anyway, till next time we're together, I hope uh, all goes well in your corner of the universe. Take care. I love you.